So one of our new segments is going to be quick reviews, just quick reviews on things. So I found this book. It's called The Three Big Questions for Every Frantic Family by Patrick Linasini. He's a family guy because he has four kids, twins as well, all boys. That's a crazy household. But he's a consultant for big, big corporations like Southwest and Walmart and all these big things. And he helps them refocus their business and get back on track. And he realized, why don't we do this for our family? And I thought, yeah. So Chris sent me a link because he found the book on the art of manliness and was like, we need to read this book. So of course, I downloaded it, read it in two days. An easy read. It's done in storytelling format as well as like an in-depth part. But it's amazing. It's really simple to do. It's a 90-minute conversation I had with Chris. And now I feel like we're way more focused on what we're doing and have a, a spot to like live from. So he basically realized that all these things that he did for businesses, he wasn't doing for families. And it's interesting because in a business, you want to be focused. You have these goals. You have these meetings. You have all these things because there's a like a risk, a loss. Like you possibly could lose your job or money if it doesn't go well. But with our families, we just kind of like fly by the seat of our pants and we don't live intentionally. And having two kids that are higher needs and a special needs kids, like I feel like all the time I'm just trying to survive and I think Chris and I were tired of that. And the first one is like, what's unique about your family? Like, what are your core values that you want to instill in your kids? What are the things that you live by and how you live through it? So for Chris and I, our context within living is basically the Crouch family is loyal and generous. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And we yearn, yearn for fun and adventure. So it's been cool because now we're back on focus. So our disciplining is now with those things in mind. And when we're making decisions about like what we're gonna do, it's with those kind of things in mind. I feel like it just gave me a way to stop just living, but kind of live intentionally and be able to take some of the stress away. So I've been able to say no more because it's like, I don't want to do that, that's not gonna help. Second thing is basically, what is like your rallying cry? Like, what do you wanna fix for the next two to four months? So this thing's going to change like over and over again. So right now we really want to work on Jackson not throwing and hitting because, you know, that will create a much more loving environment. And we created like little steps to get there. Like we're going to get him a sensory diet and we involved the girls and the girls now realize that they need to help us like take him outside and do this thing. But it's kind of cool because we're rallying around it and we're all united on how to handle him. And I've already seen a difference in a week. And then the last thing is like how often you're going to meet and we're going to do it once a week for 15 minutes at dinner. They also have these things called objective goals, which basically are things that you have to work on every single week. So like for us, it's our marriage, individual connection with the girls and Jackson, family time, finances, making sure we're not spending too much money, home order for Chris because, you know, the laundry has to get done. But it's cool. And so at our meetings, we're now rating ourselves. Like, how did we do this week? Did Chris and I have, did we have alone time? Did we work on our marriage? Did we do self-care? Did the girls feel connected? And it's cool because the girls are also like excited about rating it because it's the time for them to be able to communicate where they are. And it was really cool because Zandy was like, we didn't do very well at family time. And then we realized like, oh, this whole week we didn't intentionally play a game. We didn't, we just lived. And I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to take some of the stress away and give us a sense of intentionality in our life within the world of like trauma kids and Special needs kids, it's like any kind of control you can have helps. I don't know. Well, I'll update again in a couple months because it's only been a week and a half. 
So, you know, it may, we may not do it next week and this whole thing is, but I like it. It's taking some stress away. Oh, listeners, I want to hear what you have to say. So go ahead and give us a call at 818-533-8656 or send us an email at motherfandpodcast at gmail.com. I am ready to hear you. Listeners, we have something very special today. We have an interview with Sean Anders. This is actually part one because it was such a wonderful discussion with him. Please listen and check in next week when we release part two. You're listening to the Mother Effin' Podcast with your hosts, Patty Crouch and Heather Dragulescu. Hi, and welcome to the Mother Effin' Podcast. This is Heather Dragulescu. And this is Patty Crouch. And we have a very special guest with us today. It is writer and director Sean Anders of my favorite film of 2018, Instant Family. He did basically what Heather and I wanted to do, but just a whole lot better because he actually knows how to write and produce films and direct films <laughs> we're still learning that part so it was great because we all we were talked about writing some kind of comedy to depict foster care authentically and honestly and honestly this is the first film that we've encountered that does it so well yeah so thank you sean for doing that and welcome well thank you so one of the things we wanted to ask about is uh, you write a lot of comedies and did you sort of grow up wanting to do comedy and wanting to write for comedy? Yeah, I mean, well, yes and no. I mean, my friends and I were sort of obsessed with all of our favorite comedies when we were kids, quoting from them constantly, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I grew up, um, yeah, I just grew up really loving comedy and particularly, you know, the movies that my friends and I all love and quoted from all day long. And, and then <clears throat> I ended up making a movie just with a bunch of friends of mine, really with no intention of it ever turning into anything. Cause that just seemed like such a long shot. We just did it for fun just to make our friends laugh. And it, you know, it turned out well enough that it led to, uh, you know, enough connections and enough, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a long story, but, uh, but yeah, it ended up getting us to the point of getting an agent and a manager. And Oh my goodness. You won the lottery. Of, we worked, we worked at winning the lottery. I mean, we spent two years making a movie, <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, and then, you know, and, and you sort of built it up from there. So yeah, I guess you could say it was a dream, but it was a dream I didn't believe in <laughs> well, until we, until it started to happen. That's kind of cool that you say that, though, because there was no necessarily expectation. So you were just doing it from the passion and love, and it, that's probably what excelled and made it amazing enough to... Yeah, that's why you have to, re- you have to revise what you tell most people and just tell them that if you really have a dream, just make sure that you think that you'll never achieve that dream, <laughs> and then you might have a chance. Success! <laughs> I'll never have a Netflix special, people. It's good. So did you end up bypassing like college and just going right into writing for feature films or, or writing in Hollywood? <laughs> well, I bypassed college, but not, not because I was writing for feature films. I bypassed college because I was a lazy sack of shit. Can oh. I swear on this thing? Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can say whatever word you want. Um, yeah, uh, I, uh, I, no, when I was 19, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I kind of wanted to, I wanted to be a rock star or something, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ended up, I didn't go to college. I didn't, I wasn't very happy when I was in high school and, and so I was just kind of knocking around doing different things. I became sort of a self-trained graphic designer for years 
And I did that just freelance out of my house. Um, and that's what I was doing when I made the movie, but I didn't make the movie until much later. I was in the 30, in my thirties when I made, when I made my movie. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah. And then it was, and then once we did get into the business, it became a, you know, we, we spent a, a year just going around and taking meetings and trying to figure out what it is we were supposed to be doing. And it really wasn't until it kind of got to the point where our agent wasn't calling us back and <laughs> it was just kind of over. And we, we ended up writing a script that sold um, and it was kind of at the last possible minute. I think everybody was tired of <laughs> <laughs> of trying to help us get anywhere. And then we ended up selling a script and then that really turned everything around for us. And we've really been working ever since. When I say us, I'm referring to me and my writing partner, John Morris, just like the way you two work together. I've had a writing partner who worked with me on my first movie and we've been working together ever since. Yeah. Uh, you did an interview with uh, Joe Rogan. And you talked about how he yes. was the one who was like, you need to make it a comedy. You vent about all the funny things that happened in your life and you need to write those down and make it happen. And that's how uh, Heather and I start our writing sessions off. We just kind of vent about our life and usually it comes into something. Yeah. So, well, it's also really good therapy that, you know, every single day John comes over and we sit down and we just kind of talk about our day, talk about what we're upset about, you know, talk about whatever. So if nothing else, if we're not productive, we're at least getting some free therapy, just kind of getting it all out there. That's what yes. I keep telling my husband. I'm like, we're not productive, but I'm not crying as often. Well, I still cry, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so you actually have never done stand-up or anything. You just have always been a writer and always done it through that avenue. No, I had, I was really obsessed with stand-up when I was in my twenties and I, and I, it was kind of my dream for a while, but I was, I don't know. I, I think I was always kind of too scared and I did, the closest I got to stand-up was I lived in Phoenix at the time and I went to sign up for one of their, you know, one of their bringer nights, one of their like yeah. you know, open mic kind yes. of thing. Oh, yes. you know? And, and I went to sign up and when I got there, there was like, 200 people in line. Oh my God. And I thought, Oh my God, th this is not what I thought it was going to be. Cause my thought at the time was that you sign up for, for like six weeks from then. And I thought, well, I'm going to go sign up and then I'll know that I have six weeks to get like a couple of minutes of material <laughs> together and I'll just bear down and I'll do it, you know? And I, and so I ended up, uh, I ended up uh, going to this thing and I was, these people had been camped out since eight o'clock in the morning to get their slot. So I didn't end up getting a slot and that was as close as I got. And the funny thing is my little sister, who's an actress, um, she recently in the last two years just started taking a stand up class and started doing stand up, and she's really good at it. And, uh, so I've been kind of jealous of her, but no, <laughs> it's, that's it's my long late. answer to no, no stand up for me. Yeah. <laughs> you can still do it. You yeah. can still pop on an open mic. It'll be fun. When you were making, I'm going to jump to instant family. When you were making this film, it's, you know, we talked about we haven't seen anything before like it. Uh, I think about The Fosters, that show that was on TV, and it was such a, in my opinion, sorry to all the wonderful people who worked on it, just was not a very accurate representation of the foster care system and the adoption process. Uh, was there any sort of challenge with the studios when you were trying to pitch this film? Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no, because I had, 
we I should say we had the idea because really I think it was John's idea initially about doing a movie about this because I was you know like I said we get together every day and I was always telling him you know about what was going on in my life and I think at some point John said we should do a movie about this because he didn't know anything about how it worked and I really didn't know anything about how it worked either um, until I got into it and when we started talking about it we first we we had to make the decision of, do we do this as a comedy? Because that's what we do. We do comedy. And we knew it wouldn't be a screwball comedy like some of the other things that we've done. Um, but right away, we thought, yeah, you know, there so many things that have happened are really funny. And even the things that aren't that funny, you kind of have to find the humor in them oh, yeah. to be able to deal with them. So, yeah, you guys know all about that. Yeah. So, yeah. um so, but then when we, I think the first thing that we did is we went around and, well, we, we actually, we stacked the script. We wrote the script first and we sent a draft to, it was, it was funny, our, our agent thought that it would be a good idea to, to maybe involve, I think, you know, some prestige producers or something to be, so that it wouldn't be, I don't know, just to give us like more credibility since we're the daddy's home guys or whatever, doing a more serious subject. And I think, and some of those people that we met with, I think straight up just didn't, didn't trust us in mm. terms of, you know, oh, you're going to kind of make a comedy about this and, and then people that adopted kids are going to find this offensive and, you know. No. So we <laughs> no, did get a little not. pushback there. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing. What, what we told, like, there's a scene that, that was in that first draft script. It's in the movie where uh, Mark and Rose are on the bed and they're talking about getting rid of their kids. Yeah. And they're so frustrated, you know, that, that they're stuck. And it's funny because that was the scene that everybody bumped on. They were like, I don't know. I think people are going to be really offended by this. And I was like, you guys, (laughs) (laughs) everybody who's done this, I said, even people with biological kids have the thought of like, man, I wish I didn't have kids sometimes, you know? So, um, so there, there was, I think there was that thing of people that were outside of the world of foster care adoption were just, could be a little squeamish about, that makes sense. you know, being, being offensive or whatever. Um, and we always knew that, you know, obviously I would never want to make anything that would, that my kids couldn't be proud of or the other families that I know couldn't be proud of. So I know, I always knew it wouldn't be a problem, but we only, we, we basically just, I think we just, stuck our toe into that pool a little bit with a couple of producers. And that was the little bit of pushback that we got. But then I I sent the script to Mark Wahlberg and Mark really flipped for it, really wanted to do it right away. And as soon as Mark signed on and said he was in, of course, then everybody in Hollywood gets a lot more. (laughs) It becomes a much easier, an easier conversation after that. So Mark, I mean, I owe Mark everything for him you know, because he he really cared about the topic too. He had met a lot of kids in foster care, and he it was something that mattered to him. So when he jumped on board, all of the the clout that goes along with with his name um, really helps people to get over whatever concerns that they had and get more you know positive. <laughs> Were there any scenes that you wish you would have been able to add in, but didn't fit in the storyline, or Hollywood wouldn't wouldn't have really allowed it? Like something that you wish could have been in, but didn't make the cut. Well, there's some things that we shot. I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, when we were writing the script, it was, it was always going to be inspired by my story, but I wanted to include the stories of other families as well. So, 
um, we had met with a lot of families, a lot of kids, um, some adults who'd grown up in care and such. And so at one point, our office was completely covered with, the floor was completely covered with index cards. And we just had <laughs> such an embarrassment of riches. of, And it was really difficult to kind of pare it down. Because one of the things that we got some pressure on along the way was to cut out some of the lead up to the kids. Because there's sort of a rule with writing screenplays like this is that, you know, if the movie's about these people that adopt these three kids, then get to the kids as soon as you can. But... I didn't want to do that. I wanted to show the decision process and the and the classes and the social workers and the and the pushback yes. from the family and I wanted to get into all of that stuff before we got into the kids. So there was just so many things that we had to pack into this two hours that that yeah, there were families had told me amazing stories that we wanted to include and and then there were some scenes that we shot. There was one in particular that I missed. It'll be on the DVD though where. In the movie, um, the first day that the kids arrive, um, there's there's a moment where it comes right out of my life where, where Mark and Rose kiss and the kids go, ew, gross, and <laughs> kind of a cute little moment. And then right after that, it sort of jumps into kind of bath time and putting the kids to bed. And we had shot a scene in between those two that we had to cut really for time because we had just spent so much time on that first day of the kids arriving that it just was, it it was starting to make the movie feel lopsided, but there had been a scene where they were, it was like their first awkward dinner together where they're trying to kind of get everybody to to share at the dinner table. And there was a really nice beat in there for Lizzie where they're trying to get Lizzie to kind of open up and share with them. And she's not that interested in doing that. And then they say, well, you know, we hear that you, you do really well in school. And, and this was something that came from a girl that we met, a girl that was involved actually with the whole movie sort of advising on Lizzie. It was something that she had said. Then Lizzie says, um, well, you know, when you're foster, people have a certain, you know, they have like an expectation and I like proving them wrong. And I really hated losing that, that line, um, from the movie, but it's just the only way to have that line was to have this whole giant scene and it just didn't fit. Oh, and there's one other one, actually. There's another thing that I, that I really hated to cut, um, but it was the same thing where it was just a cumbersome scene that where the scene itself wasn't, it just wasn't working as well as we needed it to. But there was a bit, um, there's another scene in the movie where they are, um, they're at a birthday party at a park. And there's a, there's an argument that sort of comes up over Lizzie being on her phone and sort of being antisocial and being on her phone. And the scene that we shot, originally the way that it went was that Lizzie tells them, I don't have to eat with you people if I don't want to. And she mm-hmm. takes the, her brother and sister and they go sit at another table and eat. And after they walk away, Rose asks her mom, played by Julie Haggerty, who's so funny in the movie, she is, yes. um, where she says, where she says, did I ever... She's like, yeah, you know, did I ever act like that? And Julie had this great speech that she delivered so well where she was like, oh, sure. <laughs> She's like, you and you, and I think it was something to the effect of you and your sisters treated me like I worked for you. <laughs> and she, but then she says, I, I never took it personally because I know it's just part of growing up. I like her. And losing that, that little speech, because of what, I hated losing that speech because it was a character saying right out loud, this isn't about her being from foster care. Mm-hmm. This is, she's a teenager. 
She's yeah. a teenager. Of course she's kind of an asshole. Yes. These kids are just <laughs> yeah. kids that need to be loved. Like, yeah. that's the bottom line. Is they're just kids that had a different yeah. start. Yeah. And, well, yeah. I have to say, thanks a lot for some of the parts in your movie, because I got a little lippiness from my 13-year-old going, you can't take my phone. It's my property. And I said, you're adopted. That doesn't, rule does no longer applies to you. <laughs> so, give me the phone. <laughs> Yeah, there's no more book of regulations. No, no one watching us and judging us about yeah. our parenting style. Well, I guess all the other moms are, yep. but still. Um, <laughs> I, so I can tell put you. knives right on the counter if yeah. I want to. I can put <laughs> knives in your bedroom. <laughs> we tried moving them, but we had been in the foster care for so long that we moved them for one day. And we're like, just put them back where they were because that's where we know they were. <laughs> Five years in foster care, you kind of get yeah. used to where things are. Other than my laundry detergent is not locked up. Yeah. So is there a plan for like an instant family too, where you can get all those index cards that you didn't use, as well as, you know, five years later, the IEPs you have, yeah. the <laughs> lost of friends you get, like how it never ends? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it really just kind of depends on, you know, the, the life of the movie going forward. Um, you know, as far as, you know, that, that all just becomes a business model decision from, you know, mm-hmm. that, that would be more like from the studio. Um, I mean, look, I'd love to talk about these characters for the rest of my life, but oh, yeah. it's not really up to me. <laughs> well, and, and um, it kind of, I was going to say Tig Notaro's character, and I can't remember her name, Olivia Spencer, I think. Octavia Spencer. Oh, Octavia Spencer. They were so amazing as the social workers. I just want a TV show following them, dealing with all the brain dead sort of, and that's me talking about myself, like foster parents asking ridiculous questions and how they become mini therapists. Those characters were so fantastic in this film. They were. Oh, thank you. No, they were, they were great. And they were, again, not based on, but sort of loosely inspired by the social workers that we had only in the sense that our social workers were very different from those characters, but there was one who was a lot more kind of brassy and mouthy and another <laughs> one that was a lot more kind of reserved and professional. Yeah. And uh, so we sort of used that as a jumping off point for those characters. And, um, and, and they were, they were so fantastic. Um, and it was really nice that when we filmed the movie, so many social workers have come up to me and said that they, that they appreciated the way they were depicted in the movie that apparently I didn't realize this, but apparently social workers kind of get a bad rap in a lot of movies. So they, they yeah. really liked that their characters were, were kind of, you know, important heroes in the movie. They are, they are. Uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, transitioning to your inspiration, your story, why did you ultimately decide to go with foster care? For me, it, it actually started just like it did in the movie. My wife and I, we had been talking for a long time about whether or not we were going to have kids. And for the longest time, I, I just didn't really make much. I mean, neither one of us made very much money. And we, you know, we, we just felt for a long time that we weren't ready financially to bring kids in. And then when my career was taking off and we were doing better, we started talking about it again. And then I made the joke that Mark makes in the movie where I said, you know what, I'm starting to feel like I'm going to be one of those old dads. Why don't I just, why don't we just adopt a five-year-old and it'll be like I got started five years ago. <laughs> and my wife was actually kind of was like, oh, that's interesting. And I said, no, no, I was really just kidding about that. And then, you know, we ended up, you know, looking at the, the websites and, and it's just this dumb joke started a conversation. And then when we, when we started looking into it and when we started seeing the, you know, the scene in the movie 
when Mark is looking at the pictures of the kids, that's such an important scene for me because that's where, that's where it went from being an abstract idea of like, Oh, foster kids. What's that? You know, like just whatever I always knew that was growing up or whatever I always thought that was to seeing pictures of real kids. It just kind of drives it home of like, Oh, this isn't just a concept of who these kids are. These are real little human beings out there that, need families and and that led us to and we always thought from the beginning we just thought well we we weren't brave enough to just say yes we're going to do this so we thought well let's just go to an orientation and we'll just see what happens and we won't commit to anything and then we got to the orientation <laughs> and we found out that we had to take classes we kind of approached that the same way well let's just go to the classes and we'll see what happens if we decide not to do it we just won't do it you know and then by the time we went through the classes, every class we learned a little bit more and we got a little more invested. And by the time it was, you know, by the time we were certified, it was something that we felt like we were definitely going to do. So wh- what did you expect it to be? Like you made a comment, like you didn't really know anything about it. And then you're doing this orientation in class. Like what were you expecting foster care to be like? And then what was it? Well, one of the, one of the things that's really funny to me, there's the line in the movie where um, Octavia says, oh, let me check in back and see if we have any in stock. <laughs> and I did have, I, I was pretty sure we'd go to, the, this wouldn't happen, but I had a little, I thought there was a small chance that we'd go to this orientation and there would be children there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and that they're like, I was a little bit, I'm like, they wouldn't do that, would they? They wouldn't have like kids there where you go, they go, oh, hey, you look like a good dad. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I had, I thought it might be like that. And I, I definitely didn't, I didn't expect the, I didn't expect the inefficiency of the system mm-hmm. um, in terms of that when we got there, you know, we sort of felt like, okay, we worked up our courage to get to come in and go to this orientation. And then what we found out was, oh, this isn't going to happen for a really long time. It's not really, not like years, but it seemed like, okay, you know, you have to take these classes and the classes aren't starting for like six weeks. And then you got to take eight weeks. It was like, all of a sudden it was like months. And my feeling was, aren't there kids out there that need homes? Why does this take so long? And, uh, so that was kind of surprising. But then when I got into it, of course, then you start to realize, well, yeah, of course they, they need to run background checks on people. They need to make sure that people are prepared. And then, you know, you meet certain people that you go through the process with and you're going, oh, I'm really glad they have this process because it does sort of weed out some of the wackos that sort of just show up oh, yeah. uh, and, and really aren't ready to do it at all. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, when it, we did the fostering where we walked with the, the parents along the whole court system. And it's even more inefficient. It took three and a half years for us to adopt my daughters. And it took two and a half years, which was supposedly a fast track, to adopt my son. So the inefficiency gets even crazier when you start at the very beginning of detainment. And and I have a question I always like to ask foster parents, which is how long between when you finally got your paperwork done, did you get matched? We were, well, it's a a little weird for us because we, we, as soon as we were matched, I got onto a movie project that was going to take me out. Or I'm sorry, not matched. As soon as our paperwork was done, I got onto a project and it was going to take me out of town for months. Mm. So I was going to be in Boston for for months and months. So we had to kind of, after we'd gone through the classes and everything, we had to just kind of put a pin in it while I was gone. 
And then it was funny that it was the very last day we were shooting and a very hectic day. It had been a long shoot, a lot of work. Um, <laughs> I got a call from the social, I got a call from the social workers. She's like, we, we have these kids or we have, you know, we have some kids to talk about. And I said, uh, you need to, <laughs> I got to just come home. <laughs> you just give me a few more days to kind of, you know, and then, for us, what happened, it, it's actually very similar to the movie to a point. Um, we ended up, when I got back, um, they called us and they, they told us there's going to be one of these adoption fairs happening, literally like in your neighborhood. And we were really torn about whether we should go. You know, the social workers were kind of on the fence about it. They were like, yeah, we don't, you know, it's like the way Octavia in the movie says, these things are messed up, but this county does it for this reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um we went to the we went to the event, and it was super awkward. Like in the movie, yep. just like in the movie, the teenagers were all off by themselves. We didn't feel, I mean, we didn't feel qualified to have any kids, let alone teenage <laughs> kids. Um, but we did wind up meeting uh, this group of you know this sibling set of a girl that was sixteen and her younger, um, sorry, her younger brother and sister. And, uh, and with a lot of fear and trepidation, we ended up putting them on our seat, um, because we knew no one else was going to take them. And they just, I don't know, there was just something about them. They seemed great. And, but then what happened in our case that's different is that the, uh, the teenage girl, um, you know, we, we had, they matched us with them, which we knew they would. We knew if we put them on the seat, they're definitely matching us yeah, with them. Yeah, yes. And they did. And then we were trying to just sort of wrap our heads around this idea while they were doing whatever sort of administrative stuff they're off doing. And then we got a call a couple weeks later saying that the teenage girl had reconsidered and that she was really holding out hope that her mom was still coming for her. They'd been in foster care for four years at that point. And so she decided that she didn't, that she didn't want the placement and, and went to her brother and sister and said, we shouldn't do this. So, um, so what happened for us then was shortly after that, we got a call from the social worker just saying, oh, by the way, there's these other three kids. <laughs> Don't you and love that? By the way, do you want kids, different ones? Because we yeah. got more. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it really was that simple. It was just like, there's these other three kids that, he, that she gave us a little quick yada yada. And then, and now those kids are the kids that are the loves of my life, you know, but at the time it was just, it was also weird because we thought like, well, wait a minute, we met these kids where we kind of got our heads wrapped around this idea of what happened. And anyway, but you know, of course, looking back, I'm glad it happened because I love my kids so much. Of but, course. Um, but when it came time to make the movie, I never really forgot that girl. And I really wanted to make sure that we had an older kid in the mix mm-hmm. Um, so Lizzie in the movie is, is inspired by this young woman that we met at, uh, adoption fair. And then we, we sat down with a bunch of other families that had adopted teens and, uh, and some kids that had been adopted as teenagers and, and used their stories and their feelings and information to, to round out that part of the movie. Do you mind if I ask how old were the kids when they matched with you? Yeah, um, let's see, six, three, and 18 months. Wow. And then how long did the process to adoption take? Was it pretty quick, or did you have a lot of bumps in the road? It was, I, you know, 
it's funny. It seemed bumpy at the time, but especially <laughs> now that now that I've met so many other families and I've heard so many stories, it was silk, really. Um, Isn't that funny? We, yeah, we. Um, in, in our case, the the kids came to us. Um, they moved in on our daughter's uh, third birthday. Oh, so she turned three the day that they moved in with us. Crazy. And um, yeah, it's funny. We didn't celebrate her birthday because we didn't think it was right to <laughs> have a birthday party for one of the kids to be like, hey, welcome to our house. We're going to just feature one of you today. <laughs> oh, and no. the other two, you, you guys can take a back, back seat. Clearly, we're going to love her the most. So, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't want to we didn't want to do that. So we ended up giving her like an extra birthday, which of course she didn't know she was free. So we gave yeah. her an extra birthday party a few years later. And uh, I so, would have never, anyhow, I would have never caught up. Um, I'm like, forget it. Yeah, well, she, we actually we made the mistake of telling her we're like, you know, we sort of owe you a birthday, and then she never let us forget it. Yeah. Oh, she'll use so, it. She'll use it on her wedding day. Remember that time you forgot my birthday? This is why I want these flowers, Daddy. <laughs> I was crushed. Um, anyhow, uh, so they moved in on her birthday, and then it was about, I want to say about maybe four or five months into the process that we had our first court date. And then the, the result of that was just that it was going to be, it was like, a, uh, what do they call it, continuance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, you know, we went to family court. We were nervous, all that stuff. Of and course. Then, and then found out you know, that it was a continuance and we just had to wait another four months or whatever. And then we went to the second uh, hearing and, um, and that was the hearing where they, where they terminated and we were, and, and then, and this is just, you know, the way that the system can be. And I, and by the way, I totally understand that the system is this way because it's so underfunded mm-hmm. and all of these poor social workers have like a million cases on their desk and whatever, but it was, it was funny because they told us, they said, well, there will be an appeals process now. And and when the appeals process is over, then you can adopt. And, you know, you're always kind of nervous until it's all done. So then we got a call. It was probably weeks away. You know, this was going to be months away that we had to wait. So we waited for months and months. And then it was getting time to where it was like, you know, where we were about to check in on the appeals process. And one of the social workers called and said, hey, just checking in. Do you guys want to get adoption proceedings going? And we were like, sure. Is it time yet? And they were like, uh, you know, we said, is the appeal done? And they said, oh, there's no appeal. And we were like, uh, no, no, there's an appeal. And she said, who tells you there's an appeal? You did. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no appeal. And we were like, oh. Okay, then sure. <laughs> then, then yes. and, uh, yeah, and then and then so so really it was about it was about a year from the time that they moved in to the time that they were legally adopted, which is as you know, pretty pretty quick. But I mean I've also met people that have had it even much quicker than that, and then other people where it's drawn out for years, depending. Yeah, here in LA County there's a six month waiting period. So you can now adopt sooner than six months. So even if you get the placement right away, it's you have to wait six months to make sure everything's yeah. kosher. Yeah. Fine and dandy. <laughs> Fine and dandy. Everything's going all right. No one's going to, you know, give their 10-day notice and give them back. <laughs> I know. Well, we, Although act- we all think it. What is it? I think, I know the appeal process you're talking about, and I guess two weeks after our kids' appeal, birth mom showed up and was like, I want them back. And they're like, well, you missed the, the deadline. She's like, I want them back. They said, come get the paperwork. And then she never showed up, uh, which I have to say, Lizzie's character for my eldest daughter, who's 13 now, 
that was, I think it, it, it resonated with her in a way that she didn't expect because she did not want to be adopted. She wanted to reunite with birth mom. Birth mom wasn't going to show up. And then she got her hopes up when she heard birth mom was going to appeal. And then birth mom kind of let her down again. So she's been in this kind of emotional cycle. And she still, uh, based on a discussion we had recently, kind of has those hopes and dreams of going back. So it's that kind of ongoing challenge that we see. And, you know, uh, again, thank you for the film. Because <laughs> it makes you realize that. But did you do you still kind of have any of these ongoing challenges with them where they have the fears of, well, can I be unadopted? Can I, you know, can somebody come still take me? Or their trauma coming up. I'm pretty lucky in those areas. Um, our kids, um, the, the, the place where we kind of, you know, were the most fortunate in terms of just creating our own family was that our son, who was the oldest, who was six at the time, he... They they weren't in a great foster placement. It wasn't mm -hmm. terrible, but it wasn't great. There wasn't, I don't think, he certainly wasn't getting much in the way of love there. And he really wanted a family. And I think in particular, he really wanted a dad. He'd never had a dad. Oh. And he really wanted a dad and a family. So the, 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 the little ones really sort of followed his lead but what we learned just, I mean, before I was ever making a movie, just when we were in our, our, you know, support group and stuff like that, when kids are older, understandably, they, they're more attached to their birth parents. Um, and they are, you know, it's, it's, it's not too different from people that I've known. You know, I've, I've had two friends of mine that are single moms where the dads were kind of estranged from the family. And it's very common for kids in that situation to grow up sort of idealizing who their dad is, that their dad's out in the world being a secret agent or something. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it's, it's totally understandable and totally common, uh, the older the kids are, to, to have more of that connection and to mourn that connection. Um, but in our case, we, we were fortunate that that wasn't, really the case. I mean, our, I think our son had felt like he'd really been passed around. Mm -hmm. And even today, he's, he's a great kid and he's a, he's a very well-adjusted kid. But we've talked about moving, about moving to a new house or whatever. And he's like, no, he's like, we're, <laughs> yeah. he, he wants, he's very, he's very wants to stay and wants to be settled. And mm -hmm. it's something that's important to him that we were just giving him a hard time the other day that, that, uh, that at heart he's a conservative because he's like <laughs> he, he wants everything to be kind of he doesn't want anything to change he wants everything to kind of stay stay like it is um, and uh, he's a funny kid that's awesome is there anything so this is one of our favorite questions to ask is if there's one thing that someone could have told you before you started the process that you wish you would have known what would have that been oh that's a good question I think so too. Um, I mean, so many of the things that I think that people could have told me that would have really mattered. I don't know that it would have mattered hearing it from people because I, and I think this goes for any parenting, not just for foster parenting, but I think that there's so many ways that I, I thought I knew. I thought I knew, like, yeah, there's a storm coming. You know, we know it's going to be hard. We're prepared and whatever. And you can't really 
get your head around it until you're in it, you know? Um, so there, there's a lot of things that I think, well, it would have been nice to have a heads up on this or that or the other thing. But, but honestly, even as I think about it, I think, well, I don't know that it would have really mattered any because so many of those things you just have to kind of jump in and experience. I think maybe it would have been nice to, to, to have a heads up on the inefficiency of the system. Um, ahead of time just to be like, look, you know, and that, and that hit my wife a lot harder than me because I was, I was working on a movie during a lot of it. And so she was the one who would be like filling out paperwork in triplicate and then finding out that somebody lost it and she has to oh, fill yes. it all out again. And, yeah. you know, um, you know, go down to the family court building and, and submit some stuff and then find out that nobody got it and you know, things like yes. that. Um, I know we're, we're very frustrating for her. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I guess at the same time, there's a lot of good things that, that I think that, that I wanted to accomplish with the movie is that I wanted people to know that, yes, there's all this, there's paperwork, there's difficulty, there's, there's all of these things that you have to do to prepare and whatever, but unfortunately, I think when it comes to foster care in particular, because of all that stuff, people focus on that stuff and stories focus on that stuff. And they tend to focus on all of that stuff. They focus on the trauma. They focus on all of these things that are kind of headline issues because they're the things that make foster care adoption different than, you know, having biological kids. So as a result, people don't talk enough about all the wonderful positive parts of it um, that, and I've made the joke over and over again that, you know, when somebody is pregnant and they tell all their friends at a dinner party, Hey, we're going to have a baby. Nobody says, Oh my God. Like, you know, that that baby could grow up to be a drug dealer and steal your car. Someday, right? <laughs> you know, like, now I'm going to start doing that though. That. <laughs> yeah. It, it happens all the time to people that have biological kids. <laughs> But everybody, for some reason, there's this expectation that if you have biological kids, it's just going to be a life of Little League and prom and happiness and smiles and rainbows. And that's not true. I mean, kids are kids. There's going to be difficulty regardless, but there's also going to be all this wonder and enchantment and excitement and, and happiness that goes with it on both sides. So that's what I wanted to do with the movie was to tell people, to remind people that, hey, just because you hear about all of this other stuff, the whole reason why people do this isn't just because there's some kind of do-gooders that are, you know, people do this the same reason for the same reason that people have biological kids, because these kids bring an incredible amount of meaning and enrichment into your life, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why I really wanted to talk about that in the movie. In the movie, I love the part where they're sitting there talking about, oh, we just got so lucky. We got these great kids. I don't know. I think it's think it's just been easy peasy. No problem. Uh, and then everything falls apart. Because I remember the day the honeymoon fell apart for me. Do you remember for you when that happened? When things you're like, oh, this is not going to be as easy and wonderful as we thought it was going to be. When the honeymoon phase well, was over. Yeah, it's funny that the honeymoon period in the movie is a little bit more based on other people's families because it's what I've learned is that when the kids come in a little bit older and particularly if they're teenagers and such, the honeymoon phase lasts a little bit longer because they're used to kind of like coming in and acting like house guests for a little while. In mm -hmm. our case, our kids were small enough to where we had this really fun first day 
and they were, you know, they were in a new place and it was all exciting and there were like toys and, you know, and, and, and then that night when we were, so our honeymoon period lasted about seven and a half hours. (laughs) Um, That night when we were putting the kids to bed, our daughter had this enormous meltdown. She had these exorcist level meltdowns Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. that would happen 10 times a day and would go on for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. And we experienced the first one on the first night. And, and the thing, there's a thing in the movie where the little girl, it's a, it's sort of, it's one of the more sticky scenes in the movie where the the girl ends up with ketchup all over her with the crazy fire at the dinner table. But there's something that's very accurate from our life when she's growling, when she's she's like, what is that? That came from our daughter started to completely freak out. And in this freak out, when she started to calm down, she just growled at me and just stared at me. She gave me this death stare and was growling at me <laughs> like she wanted to murder me. And, and, uh, so that was the, and that was the first moment of like, Oh shit, what was that? Yeah. And then that ended up being a thing, but I, I'm really happy and proud to say that even though for months and months, she would have these meltdowns just constantly, constantly, like so much, that if we were going to go somewhere, we would intentionally antagonize her a little bit to get her to have a meltdown before we left. <laughs> That's smart. Brilliant. Get it out <laughs> of your system. Because like, she, hated, she hated washing her hands. So we'd be like, okay, we're going to go. Hey, why don't you wash your hands before we go? <laughs> and just have her. Then, then she could just, the shit show can happen in the car on the way there. <laughs> and then and then when we get there, because she would do this where she would just have these mm-hmm. just nightmare freakouts and then when she was done she was just sweet as pie and um so anyway our honeymoon period was brief <laughs> that's pretty brilliant yeah though. i may try that on jackson yeah I'm like jackson start throwing things now before we go to the dinner party <laughs> like i mean my kid had endurance to- i mean it, if he's calm afterwards you know and where that came from a friend of mine gave me really good advice once he said you know kids need food and shelter and tantrums. Oh. And he's like, it's just something they need to just get, they, they get all this stuff built up inside of them and you just need to like turn on the vent and let it out. And so when I thought of it that way, it, it, cause at the beginning I was really taking it personally. Like, why does she hate me so much? Why is she torturing mm-hmm. me? <laughs> you know? Yes. And when, when he said that it didn't make it any easier I mean, I still didn't like the tantrums, but I would, when she would start to freak out, I would just put my earbuds in and crank up some tunes and just try to ignore her and just let her, just let her kind of have at it, you know? And she would just, she would just go on and on and on. And then I'd take the earbuds out and be like, yep, still going, put them back in. And, uh, and, you know, it's just like that valve, like that valve has to be let out once in a while. But the thing I'm proud of is that, once she got through that phase and she got through it and I mean, like in about, I don't know, we, I think we put up with that for about six to eight months. Oh, I'm stopped to stop with the tantrum. I'm, I'm now hating you. I'm just letting you know. Yeah, no, Um, for real. Yeah, that's great. This girl, this girl has not had a fit since. Yeah, I'm four years I mean, and counting. This not, interview is over. Sean <laughs> Anders is a better parent than the mother effers. <laughs> we need to have him on again just to tell him about his parenting style because my eight years are still tantruming eight years later. Yeah, uh, the one I had, yeah. she would, there were times when she would be lying on the floor 
of the laundry room because it was the quietest spot in the house. And I would just, it'd be like hour four. And I'm like, I don't fucking care anymore. Like, whatever you want, I'll buy you a pony. I don't care. Just stop crying. Yeah. Because Jackson. you just can't help it. It's, they, they, the, their endurance levels are extreme. They're, I mean, yeah. Ja- I gave Jackson butter. I was like, forget it. Just eat the butter. I don't care. <laughs> eat the damn butter because I, I don't want to deal with another 45 minutes of a tantrum. <laughs> I know you all loved that. So if you want to hear part two, make sure you're here next week for the second half of our interview with Sean Anders. We have to thank Dev from Atlas Oceanic Sound and Pitcher for letting us use his professional studio to let us record. It was amazing. And thank you so much, Dev. You go beyond the call of duty every time to help us out. And we appreciate it immensely. The Mother Effin' Podcast is hosted and produced by Patty Crouch and Heather Dragulescu, with additional production by Bobby Dragulescu, recorded at Atlas Oceanic Sound and Picture in Burbank, California. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. 